The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Learn the language of spirit. This is The Intuitive Life with Laura Wooster. Hello everyone, I'm Laura Worcester, and welcome to The Intuitive Life, where we walk together and support each other on the path to becoming more spiritually aware, enlightened, and inspired. Today, our topic is the psychic path. What does it mean to be psychic, and what part does that play in our spiritual unfoldment? And the person who is here to talk about the subject today is Jack Rourke. He is one of the most prominent professional psychics in North America today. He's a lab-studied and working professional psychic and counselor and the best-selling author of The Rational Psychic. He is an extrasensory expert, a former psychic detective, and a documented medical intuitive. And in May 2022, Authority Magazine featured Jack as one of the most five influential personal coaches in America, but his day-to-day work is solely focused on helping clients address and resolve their most important personal, interpersonal, and spiritual concerns. And his bio is incredibly impressive, I have to tell you. This is just like a couple of sentences off of it, but if you want to see everything that he has brought to the table over the last few decades, go to his website. And Jack's uh, website is jackwork.net. But welcome aboard, Jack, to The Intuitive Life. Wow. Hey, Laura, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, um, yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for taking the time to be here. I know you're a a very busy man. And um, I just find you, I read your book probably 10 or 12 years ago when it first came out. And um, has it been that long? It came out, well, it's been the 10 year anniversary is this year. It's hard to believe. Yeah. And that was one of those books that I, I have so many books on my bookshelves, but and, it, and, and I had to call some of them out recently. And yours was one of the ones that I said, I need to keep this one. Cause it really had, it really impressed me. Um, the, the knowledge base that you had uh, that you offered, it was a very different approach to a lot of the mm. books that psychics write. And um, I highly recommend it. I think it's one of the top five books that I recommend to people when um, they're asking for, okay, what do, what can I read? I, I want to know more about this. And, and yours is one of them that I point, point people to. So I highly recommend the oh. Rational Psychic. Um, so thank so, you very much. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, thank you for writing the book. So, um, so Jack, what what was mm-hmm. life like as a child for you? Because oftentimes people say, "Oh, I can't be psychic. Nobody can be psychic unless they were born this way." Mm-hmm. Were you born psychic? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a great question. So, so. Okay, so let me answer your question this way. Is is I, I wrote a recent um, article where uh, maybe we could put a link to that somewhere. People might find it interesting. But in it, this actually was addressed in the book, but I think we took it out because I wrote 
um, several chapters on, well, there is a, there's a chapter in the book called The Anatomy of a Psychic. Mm-hmm. And in tandem with that, I wrote several chapters that were specifically talking about psychic childhood and psychic-like experiences, paranormal experiences, and more importantly, the way that people retrocognitively um, reimagine their life as children to ad- to support the adult identity of being psychic. Now, it doesn't mean that psychic children, or excuse me, children who can't can't exhibit or don't exhibit psychic-like behavior. But what I want to drive a wedge between is the use of the word psychic and the use of the word extrasensory. Because in the book, one of the things, it's not very sexy, but it is very interesting, is I talk about the evolution of extrasensory perception that moves people toward a psychic identity as something that evolves in relationship to the fight or flight response. And so in typically with people who identify as psychic, there is some kind of significant trauma, calamity, or they live in a rather kind of boisterous household, right? And it is this hypervigilance that is cultivated within the nervous system, which causes the, the mind of the child to work in an other than ordinary way. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. I'm speaking broadly. But what's really interesting here is to call someone psychic, in my view, is to talk about a person who has developed the, to the extent that extrasensory perception is something that they can place willfully under their control. It's not something where they're spontaneously gleaning information. It's not something where they're surreptitiously kind of monitoring the environment or responding to micro cues or getting impressions. It is the ability to, to attune to an alternative stream of information and then tune that out and return to a normal workaday life where the nervous system is not overtaxed by paranormal or extrasensory experiences. So what I would say to you, and this is myself included, is that all human beings, and particularly children, are extrasensory. Now, part of that is we know that any mom who's listening to this will knows that their child is extrasensory because they can feel it the moment that baby is placed in their arms because the child's subjective sense of self is enmeshed with the subjective sense of self of the mother. The child has no interior self. That does not begin to appear until we all know the answer to this, right? Me, mine, no, right? Mm-hmm. Two and a half yeah. to three years old, the, the brain begins to individuate. And that process continues from about three until about nine. So whereas there's a symbiotic relationship between the mother's inner experience and the child's in infancy, then slowly, little by little, that right brain, which was completely stitched to the left brain via the corpus callosum, the corpus callosum begins to pair away because our, our nervous system, particularly with the corpus callosum, we're born with more neurons than we, we could ever p- possibly need. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, beginning with the individuation process, is these, these extra neurons begin to pair away. 
And so you probably, you're a mom, you're a grandmom, right? Is if you ask your toddler, hey, who, who ate those cookies? You know, I don't know, the monster made it. And they really believe that the monster came in and ate those cookies. If you could crawl inside their head, they could see it, they could describe it. They didn't eat it. The monster did it, right? Because <laughs> their right brain is completely wired to their left brain. And so there is no sense of linear logic. There can't be a monster. No, I feel a monster. That makes sense to me. The monster is real, right? Mm -hmm. But as, as the child begins to move from three to nine years old, as those neurons begin to pair away, is what you what what results is something that looks a little more like an almond, where there's a clearly defined right hemisphere and a clearly defined left hemisphere. And we know in adult development circles is the whole point of development, loosely speaking, is to begin to attune awareness that is normally within the linear logical left brain to the right brain flow of information. Right. So literally, Christ teaches us be like the little children. Now, Christ wasn't saying, hey, go be psychic. But the seat of our awareness, the seat of our capacity to love and to think from a heart centered place comes from integrating the left and right hemisphere, right? From feeling things more completely. And through that process of inner feeling, we get the intuitive whispers, the, the visions, the voices, the tastes and textures that are the alternative flow of information. Why? Because the amygdala, the center of our fight or flight, you know, in, in the center of the midbrain mm -hmm. is in touch with eternity. It is attuned to the non-physical environment, always scanning for pain and pleasure, fight or flight, reasons for fight, pardon me, reasons for fight or flight. And in our childhood, when there's, you know, upset, upheaval, et cetera, the child be begins to develop a hypervigilance because the outer world is in some ways less safe. And so they attune to the inner world because that's their nervous system working in an other than ordinary way to provide for their well-being. And so there's a lot of talk among adults sometimes where they say, Oh my God, you know, when I was nine, I was so psychic or when I was a child, I was so psychic and you know, it, I lost that and I miss it. And then they, they, they conspire some kind of reason why that happened when it was completely natural. It was completely natural. And so there is a natural extrasensory functioning within the being of all sentient beings. And then it is also natural that it begins to kind of dissipate over time as we begin to orient more toward the outer world. Because as we transition from childhood to adolescence, is in fact, this is even a recent study has shown that in childhood, the, when the mother's voice is heard, the areas of the brain associated with oxytocin, pleasure, and comfort light up. Mm -hmm. But as soon as a child reaches, you know, anywhere between 11 and a half and 13 years old, the, the mother's voice no longer has that impact. It actually is felt and experienced neurologically as a source of alarm. And it's the voice of the, of the peers yeah. that, actually, that actually lights up the comfort and pleasure centers in that brain. Right. So it's, well, that it's natural <laughs> for us. Oh, yeah. It, so what, what we what we see, what we see is it's completely natural to move away from 
that sense of uh, enmeshment or union. And then, spiritually speaking, we spend the rest of our lives trying to find our way back to the womb, to find our way back to that sense of union, that sense of we belong here and that we're implicitly in love, and that it has nothing to do with the pursuit of psychic phenomena. And that's one of the, the greatest, greatest uh, blunders in spiritual development, which is to confuse that with psychic development. So this is a kind of a long-winded thing. I kind of went off track a little bit. But my oh, childhood great. was, just like anyone else's, was probably a little chaotic, a little painful, just enough to kind of kind of kickstart this you know, kind of intuitive threat assessment system, which through course of discipline and, and involvement, and I could, I could go down the list of, you know, all of the kind of visions and, and paranormal experiences I had as a child. And all of that would just kind of reinforce something that I don't want to reinforce. All of these things are quite natural, you know, seeing spirits or hearing voices or all of these things within a spectrum of phenomena are just part of the human experience. They don't make me special and they don't make anyone special in my, in my view. And it's the degree to which we use these things to make each other special is, is the sign that we're moving away from the unburdening of the ego, which is actually part of a spiritual path. And so I would, I would say, yeah, you know, I did, I had a lot of crazy experiences. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, or maybe I don't say this in the book, but I've said it subsequently publicly and in articles and things is that one of the things about, about the way that I view things is because I, I knew what I was seeing, what I was experiencing was real. And so I never really looked at psychic phenomena in terms of like, I need to understand this because I need to figure out why I'm special. Is I knew this, these things were real. And what I, what I always sought to understand is how could they be, right? So there's an orientation toward understanding the phenomenal world and my relation to it rather than trying to understand why I'm so significant. That was never, that was never the, at the core uh, of my curiosity. Mm-hmm. And the other, the other thing was, is the thing that the watershed moment for me, which people have seen me discuss this on television, and if the book was read, you'll, you'll see that I, I write about this pretty eloquently, is that although I had plenty of strange experiences, it was my when my twin sister died when we were 14 years old and at the moment of her death uh, i'll abbreviate the story is i was you know maybe i was in a trance maybe i was taking a nap who knows but the issue was you know i i had a paper route when i was a boy and i would get up early and you know go around and deliver papers in the first thing in the morning. And I was always running late. We were a church going family. So I was always kind of keeping everyone from the car, you know, to get to church on time. But this particular morning, I I got the papers delivered and came home and made my bed and had a shower and was all dressed in my Sunday best. And I, okay, what am I going to do? So I just kind of closed my bedroom door and very carefully laid on top of my bed. So I wouldn't mess it up. And I just closed my eyes. And I fell into this twilight state and I, I had this impulse, I was getting hot and I had this impulse to kind of, you know, pull my knees toward, toward myself and sit up and cool my back because I was sweating. 
And when I pulled my, I went to sit up, I just sat straight up. And I remember looking down and thought, well, that was weird. That should hurt. Um, and I was sat up out of my body and there was a man sort of standing there. Um, truthfully, what I saw was a brow ridge and a nose and some kind of backlit, this sort of really sort of nondescript experience. And he said, or it said, don't be afraid. And I, and oddly, I, I wasn't, I was sort of surprised, but I was more, I think, because I was all experiencing myself as being disembodied. Mm-hmm. And he, it was really, really short and put to the point, don't be afraid, your sister's dead. And then look, and I turned my awareness to the right, and there was my sister standing there. Wow. Right now, the thing about it was, was that my sister had never stood. She was in a wheelchair her entire life, and she had a variety of other really serious medical problems. In fact, by that time, I think that was probably the summer of eighth grade or something like that, she wasn't even going to school anymore because she couldn't even sit upright in her wheelchair. And I didn't know how how, how ill she was. Um, it just I never really thought about it because she was always ill, and at that moment, she had passed, and I wasn't aware. And so, but I was, I saw her standing and bright smiling literally smiling at me and i had what dr raymond moody called an empathetic near-death experience Uh, and and of course i didn't know that at the time but you know i learned that much later on but the point was is remember what it was like as a child when you would kind of run downstairs or something on christmas morning and you would like smell the tree and you know you'd smell like maybe someone making coffee or something. And then you could see like through like the darkness of the early morning, you'd see like the sparkle of the Christmas tree and all the presents. And there's this thrill. You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So there's this sense of magic and this, this kind of illumination, this like, Oh my God, like what happened here? You know, this <laughs> is amazing. And so there's this, there's just this sense of joy, sense of joy. And, and I don't know how to better uh, encapsulate that experience in words because in actuality, there's no words that you can use to describe what that is. To be not referenced by the body, right? So literally, there's no, I'm outside the container, number one, mm-hmm. and then my sister is experiencing being free from a body that she lived with, with such bravery and such dignity. And she was free and I was experiencing her freedom. And it was just this unbelievable experience that I began to weep. The body began to weep Mm -hmm. to discharge that, that, energy and I felt the tears coming down my cheek which is what sucked me back to my body it's becoming body aware brought my attention back and it's like having a dream that you want to go back to sleep and recapture right and I I just laid there and I, I wanted to go back I wanted to be in that moment again and of course it was over but you know this experience it was the watershed moment for me and it became kind of the barometer for me to understand that not only are we not our bodies, but we're capable 
of so many varied and absolutely visceral and real experiences that have nothing to do with the ego, the personality, the conditioning around that. So I don't even know if I answered your question. <laughs> no, no, you totally did. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's pretty heady stuff to experience as an eighth grader. I mean, that's that's a lot to experience. I mean, obviously the the joy must have been incredible to to sense what your what your sister was experiencing. Well, here, here's what that was like is after you know a minute or two, of course, um, my parents came in and, and were crying. And, you know, they sort of were rebuffed by like, they, I'm sure I didn't feel, I wasn't, I was in a altered state and I just was, it was like, I was in a, when I came back to my body, it was like, my vibration was so high that I was like the boy in the plastic bubble. I was looking at them through a bubble. Like, what are you doing here? Like, what, what is happening? Like I was observing their distress, but I was completely removed from it. And then they just kind of like wandered out of the room. And a few minutes later, my sister came in and then she left. And then it was, hey, you got to come out here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I walked into the living room where, of course, the neighbors were there. The priest was there. Everyone's there crying. And I literally did. I stepped into the doorway with a child on Christmas morning beaming. And just the shift, the shift in the in the felt experience, mm -hmm. everyone stopped crying, everyone turned their attention. Mm -hmm. And I just walked in and I came, I, I didn't know what to do. I kind of stepped through the crowd and found a place to sit. That was that. And everyone again turned and looked at me and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt so good. You know, the, this, the, the grief, the grief was just something that was foreign. Right. So it was, it was, it was a really kind of, you know, sort of incredible experience, but qualitatively, I'd say that the, the events really were not heavy for me to handle. What became heavy was the dysregulation between, between myself and everyone around me. Yes, because I what I experienced and what, that. Yes. Yeah, what, what I, what I was experiencing was so dramatically different. It's like I had walked through the veil and come back clean and they're all standing there filthy. Like what, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Filthy meaning, you know, just kind of they're, they're contaminated with this myopic sense of loss and self-concern and what all the other kind of things things that go along with grieving um which are all natural Absolutely. right but it's just like maybe for my part what i experienced was both absolutely the most natural thing but also completely unnatural given the environment right so mm -hmm. yes yeah. where do we go from there I know. Isn't it incredible to have that experience though and to i know right to be able to to have that that view to be able to, to understand people's grief, but at the same time, recognize, like, how do you, how do you get that across to people? I mean, obviously you, you can to a certain point by telling the story, but how, how, how do you express that to people who, I mean, I, I don't think you do mediumistic work anymore as far as working directly no. with, but when you did, 
Um, was, was there any way that you could somehow relay that to them in a way that would help? Because I know it's hard to even yeah. imagine trying to reach people with that, that sense. Because I think sure. as mediums, we've, wait, I, didn't have, I haven't had the same profound experience you've had with crossing the veil, mm-hmm. but we've touched it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to describe to people what that's like. And uh, was there ever a time you were able to actually reach someone with that knowledge? that you experienced when your, when your sister passed. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So it's not the only time I've had that type of experience. It's happened uh, two other times. And I've had three other outer body experiences and each one taught me something, something very, very unique uh, and very, very um, fundamental about the way that I believe that our physically oriented consciousness responds to um, whatever it is that organizes our relationship to the here and now and the eternal. And, and so without getting too heady on it, is your question was like, how do I, how do I bring, how does my personal experience inform or assist someone who may be grieving? And it's really, it's going to sound both ridiculous, maybe impossible, and also maybe not very compassionate, but just bear with me. So I know that my personal experience is worthless to anyone. And it may even be worthless to me. And what I mean by that is even the most profound experiences are sensory events. And if we use those sensory events as organizational structures to build a personality around, Mm -hmm. we've just fallen into one of the sweetest traps on the spiritual path. That's right. Which is no matter how profound, no matter how amazing is this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with who I am. It has nothing to do with who you are. And so what I'm saying is, is that I can use the experiences that I had to point to, Hey, look, I understand what you're going through and here's why. So really a lot of the experiences I have, I, I, I will sometimes use, as ways to undermine people when they say, well, Jack, you don't understand because I've had this happen. I so really, actually I do. And here's why. Mm-hmm. And then I can, I, I can undermine their dependence on their quote, spiritual experience, which actually at some point has now become their source of suffering because mm-hmm. they've come to create an identity around that phenomena, which limits them from expressing experience, the fullness of their being, which is we continuously need to grow and expand. Why? Because the entire universe is always spreading apart and moving toward chaos. 
And if we don't toward, turn toward that experience, the degree to which we hold on to the past is the degree to which that expansion will pull us and cause us to suffer. We need to let go and let the storm carry us and know that like Christ sitting in the boat while his disciples are vomiting over the side as they're crossing the Galilee in a storm, he wakes up and says, what's everyone doing? And they're like, we're going to drown here. And what does he do? Well, in one story, he gets out and walks into the storm and says, hey, come on out with me. Everything's great, right? Or actually, he, goes, he joins his disciples in the boat right from the shore, which means I'll walk through the storm and I'll come sit here with you. It's fine. Don't worry about it. The other is waking up in the storm and going, it's all an illusion. Why are you stressing, mm-hmm. right? So what I'm saying is, is that if we create an identity with the storm, the storm is the pattern of information, which is our lives, the sensory experiences that become our life, the degree to which we identify and dramatize what, as if life is happening to us rather than through us and for us is the degree to which we suffer. So God forbid, however, when someone loses a child, loses a partner, loses a loved one, or when they're facing the end of their own life, one of the things that I point to is when Christ teaches us and says, I can lay my body down and pick it up again. That we are eternal. Christ didn't say that, believe me, and you shall have eternal life as, a, as a, some kind of reward. That interpretation is how mankind has been controlled and moralized and marginalized, as if mm-hmm. something that's implicitly us could be withheld. What he was saying was, guys, believe me, trust me, life is eternal. And I, and I know that for a effing fact. Right. Not because I'm not because I'm so div, such, like some kind of divine avatar, but I've, I've experienced it. And so what I can do is when someone is grieving, I can say, and I work with them to help them understand that the loss is real. But it's your relationship to the, your mental construct that is your identity or that was the identity of your loved one. The, the loss of that fixed place where you could put your focus is what's causing you to suffer while they're standing right here saying, I love you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mediumship at its therapeutic application is just a way to sort of give people permission, either a not to grieve Mm-hmm. Or to say, hey, look, there is a message here, and here's what it is. And I don't know how I could know this, but I'm pretty sure your person has survived, and here's why. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's for me, I moved away from mediumship in order to work with the person who's grieving or suffering, their relationship to that identity, mm-hmm. because it's identifying with the, the form theirs and others, the dependence on the outer world to make us feel how we want to feel is the source of all suffering. And address, and that addressing that suffering is the gateway to the spiritual path. And for me, working, you know, for 
a decade and a half as a medium and then kind of really, and then walking away in the middle of being ordained for me was say, no, this feels right to me. Mm -hmm. This, this feels right to me. So my experience, you know, with kind of near death and after death and kind of things like this became a way to understand not, not just the, the, the sense of eternality and liberation, but also to turn that coin, to, coin over and really understand how we can become attached to spiritual things, including things like mediumship and, and ideas about the afterlife and heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. And it's those mental attachments that then influence our ability to fully feel and express our emotional lives. And then everything then becomes a storm in that we're trying to wrestle thoughts and feelings to organize a personality, a craft, a being, the boat, Mm -hmm. as it were, in the storm, something that we can cling to temporarily when every spiritual avatar, Christ himself, says, no, dude, step out of the boat. I'm telling you, the water is great. We can walk on it. Yeah. Right. And even if you're not, even if you're not ready to walk on it, is when you throw yourself into the chaos of the storm, you find out, oh my God, I can float because I'm made of water. It's only when we resist that we tire ourselves out and we drown. So the moral of the story is not to get too attached to any experience that you have, even as mystical as it may be, or or it appears to be. What are your goals, right? If your goal is to be the world's best psychic. Well, what does that mean? Exactly. But if your goal is to walk a spiritual path, then if you choose to use or wield extrasensory perception, then it's who do you serve? Because if extrasensory perception does not develop into a psychic skill, you're only serving yourself. Mm-hmm. You're serving yourself to maintain and propagate your identity as a psychic. And people say, well, Jack, you know, well, you're a psychic, so like, aren't you a hypocrite? And I'd say, well, maybe, okay, from a certain point of view, but 30 years into this is, I can really comfortably say that psychic, psychism is a service that I employ to help others. It does not appear in my private life. In fact, it doesn't appear in off hours, off business hours. Right. And where I am in my personal journey is to, is every client who comes to me is to welcome them as a branch of my path. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I work with, with psychotherapists. The dichotomy, the, the 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 kind of imposter syndrome that they often deal with is like when they're counseling people and they covertly re- resent them because they're calling them and texting them and they don't feel organized in their own life and they're supposed to help people because there needs to be a, a congruency between our life in the session room or the reading room, whatever you call it, right, and our personal lives. Right. right. But we also, in order to thrive, we also need to have fully functional boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that includes spiritual boundaries. 
Exactly. Right? So we so we have to figure out what does it mean to be spiritual, and how do I embody this as a practice, and then use this dimension of my person as a value-adding service. Right? This is where it gets to be tricky. Exactly. And you probably know yourself. You know yourself that to develop psychically, maybe that's going to take five years. Maybe it's eight years. Maybe it's 10 years. Maybe you have no business working with the public outside of a controlled setting until you fully understand who you are, how to turn it off and on, and how you uniquely serve. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's the path. That's the difficulty. That's Mm-hmm. The jitsu, as they say, it's it's the strategy, it's the it's the technique. That to be psychic is, is to be a craftsman. It does seem to be sorry, I tend to ram- I tend to ramble. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. All right. I enjoy listening to you ramble. It's totally fine with me. Um, but it but it is, you know, it kind of points to a lot of things that are happening nowadays, you know, especially in the age of social media. Mm-hmm. It seems to be so many people are utilizing the fact that they've had a psychic experience or maybe they could be, you know, um, they consider themselves mediums and they turn it into something they can market and post on social media mm-hmm. and promote themselves. And yeah. like, and exactly what you're saying is they, they attach themselves to that, to that label, to that identity of being someone who had a psychic experience or an extremely sure. spiritual experience. And, and they can't, and it doesn't mean it doesn't have its place. Um, but what you're saying is when you attach yourself to that, um, you can't evolve from that as well. So um, that, that's right, and that's why you get that's why you get psychics who maybe are in their thirties, forties, or fifties, and you you see them struggling, you see them burnt out. Yep. Because they're not they're not growing. Yes. And they're not growing because they're clinging to an antiquated way of relating to psychic phenomena in order to preserve an identity that is no longer serving them. Mm-hmm. Right. So it requires evolution. So now when you're working as a medium, don't you sometimes find it to be something rather prayerful? And I don't mean to be in a religious sense, but I mean a sense of, of, of genuine open heartedness where there's an, you, your heart is so open and you see, feel so attuned to the present moment that it becomes timeless. And there's a communion between the seen and the unseen. Absolutely. So, and that's what it's, what, that's when it's, it's the best connection too. Yeah. Ex- exactly. It's prayer, a prayerful. It's an exchange of information through the felt experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the issue is around this, these kinds of, you know, um, people who kind of enlarge themselves on social media is even before the internet. And I don't know about you, but I'm embarrassed to say I had a life long before the internet. So, <laughs> Um, you know, many, many of my clients were, yeah, many of my clients who are really young now, they're like, remember 9-11? They're like, no. I'm like, oh, God. You know, um, but my point is this, is even long before the internet, I had a real, and I, I, I don't mean to keep going back to reference kind of biblical things, but there's a lot of really wonderful things to pull on there. Mm-hmm. But I, I always saw mediumship and, and I, I'm going there because that's where I, where I started as a a profoundly uh a prayerful union and in the new testament 
what is what are the what is the teachings of Christ? What does he look at? Who does he who does he warn people of? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, who stand on the corner and pray in public, puffing themselves up, right? Praying out loud in public, right? And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, right? Is you know this kind of here I am center stage, and don't look at my diamond ring, but just look how humble I am, mm-hmm. right? And I'm going to humble brag out loud about spirit and this and that, and I'm going to then talk about all the magical things and one and it's it is insufferable because it's not about whether or not the phenomena is real or not. Children can manifest extrasensory phenomena. You're not special. What is unique about the way that social media is aggrandizes the personality is that it has a way of amplifying things and doing things much more quickly. And the problem is, is that most people, you know, they really don't understand the phenomena, how it works, or how to genuinely serve anyone. And they want to be a part of that community. They want to be part of that experience. Mm-hmm. So by opening up and giving, you know, feeding the ego of another, it allows them to surreptitiously kind of experience their own grandiosity, right? People, you know, I'm sure with your clients, you have probably, if you had a nickel for every person who said their ex-boyfriend or girlfriend was a narcissist, you know, we'd be millionaires, right? That's right. <laughs> but, 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 but narcissism, narcissism is incredibly intoxicating, mm-hmm. right? Because when we get around a narcissist, someone who is estranged from their own emotions and is really into their own vanity is yeah. they invite us to feel that much more powerful, that much more beautiful and so there's something very very intoxicating and when you when you put it put a layer of icing over it that has this spiritual veneer Mm -hmm. then it's like woof well we can't dare criticize this person right Mm -hmm. because you know they're somehow kind of endowed by god and plus i would like to be like them i would like to i want to be in that kind of you know that that sort of limelight or glamour and it's really just becomes this sycophancy and so, you know, it, it is kind of like, God, oh, you know, God bless them. And you have to just walk away. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it because I, I, I don't know if you have experiences like this, but I'm sure you do, which if you reach any kind of um, if your work does organically breach the public kind of, you know, becomes a public thing, it, mm-hmm. it begins to take on a life of its own. And then you have people who live in obscurity who will position themselves to attach themselves to you, or they clamor for your attention to validate what oftentimes is really, really frightening behavior. Yes. Right. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It's very, and I mean, and I don't mean this sarcastically. I mean it's legitimately scary. It is. Oh, um, I totally and, understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it there because with psychic phenomena, the mind is operating in an other than ordinary way, which adds a stress to the mind and the body and the nervous system, and in many ways can emulate mental illness. Mental illness in how the 
extrasensory events can misinform the identity of the perceiver. And this goes back to is we have to be very mindful that as individuals, but also particularly as psychic practitioners, that our experience of self emerges in relationship to our sensory experiences and our belief about them. So we have to be very, very vigilant about the what mirror we look into, right? Mm-hmm. Who we allow to function in our lives as someone who's going to represent back to us the reality or unreality of who we are. And this goes back again to this idea of in every sort of indigenous culture, but certainly in some, the core Abrahamic religions, but even in Eastern traditions. Like, so in, in Christianity, we talk about taking the Christ in our heart, right? Or in Catholicism, the blessed heart of the Virgin or Buddhism is the heart of the Buddha, right? So it goes back to this idea of when we're prayerful, we feel our our mental capacity shifting from between our ears to our heart. And every indigenous culture un- understands that this is the seat of our soul. This is the seat of wisdom. Mm-hmm. But it also is the seat of our connection to the transpersonal, that which is beyond our, our human identity. And so we look at kind of the spiritual path and we can see that Our spiritual boundaries are the degree to which we model our own inner need fulfillment and not the needs of the personality. And that opens up the lower chakras that lead to the release of Kundalini, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and can give us an illumined presence. All right. So these things are all kind of interrelated. I don't know. I'm jumping around a lot. <laughs> Running all over the place, but maybe you can reel, reel me back in a little bit. Oh, this so. has been great. No, this is wonderful. I, I totally get where you're going with this and completely understand what you're saying. And, um, and it is, I just feel like it's so important because I do think if people would, I mean, I, I see sometimes I have, a, you know, obviously the world that I walk in, there's so many people in the spiritual realm, you know, and so many different focuses of of um of the spiritual path and so it's frustrating sometimes and 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 i keep i I, myself too i have i try to maintain as tuned in to where i am being more objective to where i am as far as my own biases and things like that and so i think that's part of the spiritual path as well as being very aware to that because i can't i can't help other people if i'm not aware of my own stuff you know, so sure. Um, and and bi- biases are not implicitly wrong. Right. No, you know, exactly. there's not as we have to we have to, we have to take the morality out of it because, you know, we are moment by mo- moment making when we're aware of our biases, it gives us the opportunity to make decisions about the kind of men and women that we want to be rather than compelled to conform to an identity that is created on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So it's it's that it's that identification, identification meaning this tethering to a set of sensory or experiences, memories, habits that represent who we are as an ego, rather than the ego being used skillfully, surgically, to express and experience the blessing that is our life force. 
right? So we're not going to get rid of that ego. The ego is the vehicle through which we, we witness and experience life, physical life, but we can still quiet the chatter. We can disidentify from our past, from our sensory experiences and become still, right? And then the still small voice within begins to live our life for us, right? It's this idea of when Paul was imprisoned by the Romans and he was writing to all of his churches, right? Which incidentally, this was the this is the yogic tradition. You know, the center of the the center of the religious world was not the East. Excuse me, wasn't rather the you know kind of the western part of the Mediterranean. Yes, many eons ago there was industry schools in Egypt and Greece, etc. But long before that, it was India mm-hmm. and the salvation, the salvation content. And in those traditions, you would have the wandering avatars, the wandering masters, the yogis. And there was no internet then, so they would walk, go, they would travel around, give teachings, give healings, and then they would leave some teachings behind and they move on. And they'd say, see you next year or see you in six months. And the teacher would do a loop, right? And so Paul had been missing from the loop for a while, and he wrote to his churches in, uh, you know, in the Greek-speaking world. And he said, hey, guys, uh, guess what? I got caught, and uh, you're not going to see me again. In fact, tomorrow they're going to chop my head off. But what he said was, don't worry. I've given you everything you need to know, and it's not my life, but the Christ that lives through me. Right. So what it means is that he knew that the, the teacher, the life that was flowing through him, that had long since gone away, he, had, he was born Saul of Tarsus, and he became Paul. So Paul was his Christian name, but not because, you know, he just, oh, that's a good idea. I need to rebrand here. You know, I got to get away from the murderer (laughs) that I was. I need to rebrand. It wasn't about rebranding and opening up a new Instagram page, right? (laughs) It was what, what it really was, was he had surrendered any identity that was, in fact, we know from the stories that he was blind and was blinded. And then the vision came back, right? And the vision is, of course, even if it's just metaphorical, is the understanding of who he really is. And then the body, the ego was then transformed and it was henceforth being used as a vessel of the living breath, the universe, whatever you want to call it, right? God, mm-hmm. you know, God is such a controversial name because, it, but, you know, there's, you know, it kind of has this, you know, monotheistic sort of um, representation that we can get caught of when really that's mm-hmm. it's not how it is, right? So right, exactly, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I know a lot of yeah. a lot of my listeners they it's interchangeable for them. You know, the source, the great all, the greater consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and all of that, all of that is concept. Even those kind of interchangeable things are a way of accommodating. Uh, accommodating a uncomfortable aspect of our, it's kind of a, it can be a virtue signaling. We don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to be, I don't want to fall under the patriarchy, 
right? And it's understandable. But at some point, just that which can't be named. Yeah. Right? It it really is. It's just that that it can't be named. You can't put it in a box. That's right. It just is. Certainly yeah. something we struggle with quite a bit is putting putting a a human context to <laughs> to something that just cannot be named. That's uh that's a, that's a struggle. Why, why do you think that is? Oh why do you put, think that is? Oh putting uh trying to put a human because we just can't wrap our mind around the power that's that's mm. there that's within us all. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. um I think I think all of us know it to some level, but many of us deny it. Um, yeah, that we're part of we're part of that whatever that you know that which cannot be named, are you know being you know the closer we are to our ego ego selves and not, and we all have to have ego I get that to a certain extent in order to survive but yeah. Um, yeah. but the the closer we are to that identification to the ego self um, the more we need to be attached to something so much greater than us that's so distant from us and we have to put it out there somewhere so this idea of there needs to be something greater Mm -hmm. there's a reference a referencing to something else Mm -hmm. and it's the referencing to something else which if we say it is this or it is that is there something about that that feels the more sensitive you are the more you can implicitly feel the falsehood mm-hmm. of putting a name on something. Mm-hmm. Because the moment you say this is this or this is that, you, it's not the words that are implicitly wrong. It's the relational experience. Because when we say it is this, we've established that there is a subject and an object. Yes. And it's it's that it's the it's the position of being a perceiver and that which is perceived which is the falsehood mm-hmm. so this is why in mystery schools they would never you you would never have a name for god and in similar ways you know there would be no name for the devil right? because they to create that relational experience of this and that is to actually make it manifest. But the same is true for the concept of God to call it this is to make it that. And that implicitly feels falsehood. So when we say I am, right? So the Abraham traditions, we Abrahamic traditions talk about the great I am. Right? So the great I am is whatever comes after I am is the falsehood. So I am this, I am that, but it's the I am, which is the creative power, because the minute we, the I am is non-dualistic. So we might be able to say, I am witnessing, or there is witnessing, or there is being. But if we create a subject and an object, we've just split the divine into two. And everything built on that must be untrue because that which is ultimately real and eternal has no beginning and has no end i am is the alpha and the omega if we say i am the alpha and the omega that's not the same thing 
Because all of a sudden that sounds like Jack saying, Hey, I'm everything. Look at me. I'm everything. Look at me. I am alpha. I am, I am the alpha and the omega. There's two, there's a state of being that's, that's observing the alpha omega and the state of being that's assigning an identity to that alpha and omega. But if we sit, if, if we understand I am as the alpha and omega, I am is eternal. That is, that's the source from which all creation flows. Mm-hmm. And this is why, you know, many devout people just stop talking because words themselves are not enough. Exactly. And the spiritual path, the, the spiritual path leads us beyond words and thought into being. Mm-hmm. And this is why with psychic phenomena, I'll bring this full circle, is there is is difficult, it's a difficult thing to hold on the spiritual path because psychic phenomena requires a subject and an object. That who that which is being observed and that who is observing. Right? Mm-hmm. But the interesting the interesting thing is you know, I'm going to use Christ again, but, and it's also the same in, in Buddhists and the Buddhists are the same thing. There's other teachers who said similar things, but you know, how do we walk a spiritual path? First thing to do is point to a child, be like a, be like, a, be like the little children. Right. How and ironic is well, my granddaughter just walked in the room. <laughs> just as, I, I know. I, I know. I, I can, I, I, I can see her. Could you hear? Is, <laughs> Yeah, we walk like to be like be like a little the little children, right. and we can bring this back back full circle. Which is, what does it mean to be child? It means to be integrated. It means for the ego's linear logical left brain to be softened by the right brain. It means to not be lorded over by mentality in our conceptual mind, but to be open hearted to pretend that we don't know what's going to happen next, to be spontaneous and in touch with our bodies and what we're feeling right here, right now, and knowing that who we are right in this heartfelt moment Mm -hmm. is enough. And that's eternal. Yeah. Yeah. How do we, how do we get there? I mean, is it, is it, is it the dismantling that happens from time to time as we struggle with actually who we are? And in mm-hmm. our relationship to what we see is God. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the challenges is to is, is, that I see is people look at the spiritual path as something that requires a linear journey. Yeah, something that's going to that's something that's going to take them from here to there, and. That's where it gets difficult, or that the spiritual path is a way of manifesting circumstances that will represent who we think we are and all of our beauty and perfection. So I'm going to busy. I'm going to get busy manifesting because that's going to demonstrate how powerful I am. And when I do that, what shows up is going to make me feel how I want to feel, and also show the rest of the world how special I am. Mm -hmm. 
and what we're doing is we're we're aligning with a mental function that begins to impose our view over the world instead of trusting that the universe doesn't need your help. The universe is responding to the contents of your character, blowing through you and working for you, and that when we can be still and feel and be with exactly what manifests in our lives organically, we know that when we can tolerate that, those circumstances are exactly what's perfect for giving us the opportunity to decide to move more closely in harmony with who we genuinely are. Right. So we love surprises in life. We love like money and attention and, you know, that hot person who thought we were hot too, whatever that looks like. But the things that maybe don't feel so good, we think, oh, this is, you know, this is terrible. This is wrong. I got to fix that. When in actuality, it's these challenges that pop up, which have the greatest opportunity right, for us to demonstrate who we genuinely are. That's right. Because they confront our ego's vision of what's acceptable and who we need to be. So the spiritual path is is to walk that is to embrace uncertainty. It means to be uncomfortable. It means to turn toward the storm rather than away from it. And and many people misunderstand spirituality, the place between sort of, you know, theism and atheism Mm -hmm. is supposed to make me feel good, supposed to make me feel magical, right? It's supposed to give me these sensory um, experiences where I know that I'm significant and so much more and different than the average person. Mm-hmm. And we cling to this notion when, in actuality, to turn toward our stuckness or turn toward our challenges is to is to feel something tight, something small, something uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We feel the cocoon that we're in. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not very pleasant, right? But we know that if we see a cocoon and we see a butterfly struggling inside there, if we tear open that cocoon, what happens? And we toss the butterfly up in the air. Aren't we a terrific help? No, the butterfly dies. It goes up in the air and it hits the ground and that's it. Because it's the struggle that strengthens the creature's wings. Mm -hmm. And by the time that cocoon breaks... It's strong and full of vitality, and it flaps its wings, and isn't it beautiful? So we have to understand that everything that shows up in our life is our path, and to be with that. And this goes back to another thing, is that when you accept the responsibility to be psychic, is to accept the lives of your clients as your path to 
Exactly. We're here to help. Exactly. That's the bottom line. And it's about connection and helping helping others. That's so very much so. Laura, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I, I could listen to you talk for hours. So much, <laughs> uh, so much wisdom and and just validating things that I couldn't put words to myself, to be honest. Um, things that I've been struggling with. And uh, you put all you put words to it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate well, you, it. You're very welcome and you're a blessing. And I appreciate all that you're doing to, you know, kind of um, carve out a place in your corner of the world to add value to have these wonderful conversations that can inspire people to ask deeper and better questions about who they are and the way that they relate to their own lives and their own spiritual experiences and and how they can in the end love themselves more deeply understanding that that's enough and that the love that they embody for themselves becomes the light that allows others to feel the peace and love that they need as well, right? So we don't need necessarily more psychics. We need more people fully capable of loving themselves. And you're doing that heavy lifting, and I'm grateful for that. Exactly. Thank you so much. We, uh, I'd love to have you back again sometime if, if it's in your schedule at some point. You're very, very welcome. You're a blessing. And I'm here whenever you need me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And for everybody who's listening, please check out Jack's website, jackwork.net. And definitely check out his book as well, The Rational Psychic. A wonderful book. Highly recommend it. And um, have a great week, everybody. Be well. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the program, please consider leaving a review so that others may find it and benefit as well. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.